how does alcohol impact our brain and our body? In today's episode, you're going to learn about how alcohol impacts your ability to lose weight, how it impacts your stress hormones, your sex hormones, your gut health, and your ability to sleep. You're listening to the Best You Podcast, where we teach you the healthy habits you need to look and feel like your best you. My name is Nick Carrier, and I'm an entrepreneur and body optimization coach who has coached over 600 people through my program, The 10-Week Transformation. The 10WT makes it simple for former athletes who struggle to prioritize their health and fitness to regain the confidence in their body that they once had. If this is your first time here, make sure you click follow on the Apple Podcast app and on Spotify. And if you've been listening for a while and are not following, make sure you hit that follow button. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit the subscribe button below. All right, you guys, today we're going to be talking about alcohol and the science behind it. So alcohol consumption is a tough topic to cover because our relationship with alcohol is complicated and it's very unique for each of us. In today's episode, I'm going to strictly be talking about the science of alcohol consumption and how it affects our brain and body. But in next week, next week's episode, I'm going to dive into specific tools and tips for how you can actually manage your alcohol consumption so that you can lessen the negative effects and lessen the negative impacts that it actually has on our body. Before diving into this episode, though, I want you to know that the science that I'm going to be breaking down in this episode is largely coming from Dr. Andrew Huberman of the Huberman Lab podcast and from Dr. Brooke Scheller. And Dr. Brooke Scheller is the author of a book, How to Eat, How to Change How You Drink. And I just interviewed her on the Best You podcast at the time of this recording. That episode has not yet come out, but a lot of you guys are probably going to be listening to this or watching this after it has come out. So make sure you go check out that episode with Dr. Brooke Scheller as well. And it's great. So that's this week's episode. It's going to be breaking down the science. Next week's episode, so it's going to be a two-part series. Next week's episode, is going to, I'm going to provide you some tools and tips based on some of the science and based on my personal experience as well. So both Dr. Andrew Huberman and Dr. Scheller don't really drink alcohol. Dr. Andrew Huberman drinks very little alcohol. Dr. Brooke Scheller doesn't drink at all because she used to be an alcoholic and has since done a great job of working away from that. And that's great, and that's better for their health that they don't. But I do drink alcohol, and I hope my approach, therefore, is a little bit more, maybe more approachable and more realistic for a lot of you guys listening who maybe do drink alcohol and want to continue to drink alcohol but want to manage the negative impacts that it has on your health and fitness goals. And then, like I said, lastly, before I get started, the goal of these episodes is not to demonize alcohol. I love a good ice-cold beer. I love a glass of red wine. I love Moscow Mules. I love margaritas. However, we can all basically come to the agreement that when it comes to alcohol from purely a health perspective, let's say it's anything but a health food. So we're going to be talking about seven different topics today. The first of which is how alcohol is metabolized inside of our body. The second is alcohol's, alcohol's effects on the brain. Third is its effects on stress hormones. Fourth is how it impacts our gut microbiome. Fifth is how it impacts our sex hormones. Sixth is how our alcohol tolerance actually fluctuates. And then seventh is alcohol's impact on sleep. So let's go ahead and dive in. Topic number one, how alcohol is metabolized inside of the body. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that there's going to be a few terms that I'm going to be throwing out today that I'll make sure you know which ones are ones that I'd encourage you to at least maybe not memorize, but understand and grasp the concept of a little bit. But bear, bear with me on some of these big terms. So alcohol is both water and fat soluble. That means it can pass into all cells and tissues of our body. 
And alcohol is indiscriminate of which cells and which tissues that it actually passes into, meaning it just kind of goes randomly into different cells and different tissues. And, that, and the cells and tissues that it goes into is going to be different for each individual person. Therefore, alcohol impacts each person maybe a little bit differently. There's also three different types of alcohol, isopropyl, methanol, and ethanol. Now, those first couple are going to be more used in cleaning products. Ethanol is the only one that's fit for human consumption, but it's still considered a toxin and can still provide a lot of stress and damage to our cells inside of our body. So when alcohol is consumed, it's converted. Here's one of the first big words. When alcohol is consumed, it's converted into what's called acetaldehyde and by an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase. Now, I'm going to be referring to that a lot as ADH. So again, alcohol dehydrogenase is an enzyme that converts alcohol into acetaldehyde. And so acetaldehyde is actually a poisonous compound that's going to damage and kill cells inside of our body. So acetaldehyde, which is that poisonous compound, is then converted into something called acetate by an enzyme called aldehyde dehydrogenase. Again, I know I'm throwing a lot of fancy words at you. Don't worry about memorizing them. Just know that when we consume alcohol, it's converted into a poisonous compound, and then it's further converted into another compound called acetate. So these two enzymes that are responsible for these conversions are present in different amounts in each of our bodies, and it's largely influenced by our genetic makeup. So if we have higher levels of alcohol dehydrogenase and higher levels of that other enzyme aldehyde dehydrogenase in our bodies, then we're more quickly able to metabolize alcohol. Therefore, the idea being that we would experience less of the negative effects of alcohol inside of our, of our body. And again, depending on your genetic makeup, you might have more or less of these enzymes to metabolize alcohol. So when alcohol is converted to acetaldehyde, it's the acetaldehyde buildup inside of our body that is actually responsible for a lot of the negative effects on our health. And it's acetaldehyde that is responsible for giving us the feeling of being tipsy or being drunk. So the more quickly that we can clear and metabolize this chemical compound, the better off we're actually going to be and the less we're going to experience those negative side effects. So the cells in the liver are responsible for this clearing and this metabolic process. Therefore, the liver is taking a pretty heavy beating when alcohol is being consumed. So you may have heard that alcohol is, quote, empty calories, and that's actually true because there's no real nutritional value that you experience from alcohol consumption. There's no amino acids, there's no fatty acids, and there's basically no fuel that comes from alcohol. I say basically no fuel because there is some remaining acetate, inside of our body that can be used as fuel, but it's not the body's preferred fuel source, and so a very small percentage of it is actually utilized. So alcohol provides us with no nutritional value, and it's metabolically demanding, and that's why it's considered empty calories, if you will. This is why reducing alcohol consumption can actually play a key role in anybody's goal to lose body fat, because our liver will prioritize metabolizing and breaking down alcohol over anything else. So basically, anytime your liver is spent breaking, is spending time breaking down alcohol, it's not spending time breaking down fat. So again, kind of like a quick little summary of that science there is when we consume alcohol, it is converted into acetaldehyde, which is a poisonous compound, and it's converted by that enzyme ADH, and then it's further converted into a compound called acetate. So that's the first one about how alcohol is metabolized inside of our body. 
The second topic is alcohol's effects on the brain. So when the liver begins to convert the alcohol to acetaldehyde and then further into acetate, some of these chemical compounds are going to cross the blood-brain barrier. So for our safety, the blood-brain barrier doesn't let many things cross into it because these compounds, but because these compounds are both water and fat soluble, they are able to make their way in. And so when these compounds get into the brain, again, they're indiscriminate with regards to where they go. And so what's shown in the data is that they tend to go to areas of the brain that are responsible for certain kinds of thinking and behavior. For example, studies show that it leads to a suppression or a lessening in the activity of the neurons in our prefrontal cortex. And so our prefrontal cortex is an area of our brain that's responsible for thinking and planning. And so if you've ever been drunk before, then you know that when alcohol crosses the blood-brain barrier, then you might not have as good of an idea or a good of ability to carry out a lot of thinking and planning. So this lesser activity in the prefrontal cortex prefrontal cortex leads to more impulsive behavior and leads to lesser decision-making ability. And again, most of you guys who have felt that being, had the feeling of being tipsy or drunk before, you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, Studies show that alcohol consumption will lead to lower activity in that prefrontal cortex during times when you're not drinking as well. So a lot of people think about the negative impacts of alcohol when you're actually consuming it, but there's actually studies and data that show people who consume alcohol on a regular basis are also have less activity from the prefrontal cortex even when they're not drinking alcohol in the future. So one bright side of the story is that there are studies that show this impact on the prefrontal cortex can actually be somewhat reversible for a lot of people. So if you can abstain from alcohol for two to six months, then you can see almost a complete rebound in prefrontal cortex activity. Again, that might not be for everybody. It's going to be depending on how much alcohol you've consumed for how long of a period of time you've consumed it, etc. But lastly, in the literature discussed by Dr. Andrew Huberman, he recites studies that show people who drink on average one to two drinks a day or seven to 14 drinks per week, that over time, it will also show that they have less gray matter in their brain and more white matter. And to keep it short and sweet, gray matter indicates a healthy brain with good levels of cognitive ability. And the more white matter that you have, the less cognitively healthy you are. So not only does alcohol negatively impact the activity in the prefrontal cortex for things like thinking and planning, but also creates more white matter into the brain, which is a essentially less healthy brain, if you will, to keep it simple. So kind of as a summary of this second topic, when alcohol is converted into acetaldehyde and into acetate, those two compounds can cross the blood-brain barrier, which can then impact our prefrontal cortex, leading to a lesser ability to perform tasks of thinking and planning, both in the moment, and it can impact us moving forward, and alcohol can lessen the amount of healthy gray matter in the brain and increase the amounts of unhealthy white matter in the brain. The third topic I'm going to discuss is alcohol's effects on stress hormones. Now, I thought this next part was pretty fascinating, and there's a decent amount of science in this, and so pause it, rewind it, write anything down if you want to, but I thought this part was pretty fascinating. In our bodies, there is something called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or for short, the HPA axis. So let's break that, break back down into the three different terms there. The hypothalamic, the hypothalamus is in our brain, and it's one of the most important parts of our brain as it regulates so many different processes. The pituitary gland is also in our brain, and it's responsible for producing a lot of different hormones inside of our body. 
And then the adrenal glands sit on top of our kidneys and also play a critical role in our body in the production of hormones. So that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so we have the hypothalamus and the pituitary in our brain and the adrenal sitting just above our kidneys. And so the hypothalamus provides specific signals to the pituitary glands, which then release hormones into the bloodstream that talk to your adrenal glands. And your adrenal glands will release things like epinephrine and cortisol. This HPA axis is basically the link between our brain and our endocrine system. It's the link between what we perceive as stressful and then our physiological response to that stress. And that part to me is just so fascinating. The way that I translate that is that our brain interprets stress, is that how our brain interprets stress will determine how our body responds to that stress by the hormones that it either does or does not produce. So how is this impacted by alcohol? Well, when we consume alcohol, studies show that our HPA axis is actually negatively impacted, and it's not just when we drink, but during times when we don't drink as well. And that means that if we're someone who drinks alcohol regularly, then during times when we're not drinking, we're more likely to experience stress and anxiety. The HPA axis is more likely to produce cortisol, our stress hormone, even when we're not drinking, if we are a chronic drinker. But again, a kind of a good a high note or a good note, if you will, is this HPA access is modifiable. It can change over time. And if you decrease your drinking habits, you are less likely to experience as much stress during times when you're not drinking. So again, kind of know that was a lot of science, but here's a quick little summary. Again, our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access or HPA access for short is our neuroendocrine link between perceived stress and physiological and our physical physiological response to stress. And it's this axis that's responsible for what stress hormones are released inside of our body given our experience with the outside world, if you will. Studies show that if we're chronic alcohol drinkers, which Dr. Andrew Huberman defines as drinking average one to two drinks per night or seven to 14 per week, then our HPA axis is more likely to produce our stress hormones like epinephrine and cortisol even during times when we're not drinking, which leads to greater levels of stress and anxiety. Fourth, topic of the day. We're going to talk about how alcohol impacts our gut microbiome. Now, when you hear the words gut microbiome, you should think about a colony of millions upon millions of bacteria inside of our gut. Some of these bacteria are good bacteria and some of them are not. And at any given point in time, we want the good bacteria to outweigh the bad bacteria. So said in another way, we want the population of the good bacteria to be much higher than the population of the bad bacteria. And if we have a higher population of bad bacteria, then we're said to have something that's called dysbiosis. And if we have dysbiosis, then we are more likely to experience inflammation, digestive issues, cognitive decline, and more. And when we drink alcohol, yes, alcohol can kill bacteria inside of our body. That's why alcohol is used for cleaning products because it kills bacteria. But when it's inside of our body, again, it's indiscriminate of what bacteria it actually kills. Therefore, it leads to killing a lot of the good bacteria inside of our gut as well, leading to that state of dysbiosis. So that's the first way that alcohol impacts our gut. The second is how it impacts our gut lining. So the lining of our gut is made up of millions and millions of cells that act as a barrier or a security system, if you will, and decide what gets absorbed into the bloodstream and what doesn't. And if we have a healthy gut lining, then we're able to properly regulate what gets absorbed into the bloodstream and what does not. We're able to keep out harmful bacteria or other particles from going into the bloodstream and wreaking havoc. But if we have what's called leaky gut, which a lot of you guys maybe have heard before, leaky gut or intestinal permeability, that means we have holes in our gut lining that makes our security system weaker, 
which leads to more harmful par harmful particles to leak out of the gut and into the bloodstream, leading to a cascade of negative effects. And so alcohol can poke these kinds of holes into our gut lining. So those are really kind of two ways that alcohol directly impacts our gut, our gut health. But unfortunately, it doesn't just stop there because our brain and our gut and our, are in constant communication by way of something that's called the vagus nerve. And when we drink, our gut communicates to our brain that we want more of it and it can cause us to want to drink more. So lastly, consuming alcohol decreases our ability to absorb nutrients as well from the food that we eat. So when we eat food, our body will either digest and absorb it or will excrete it in our urine or our stool. And there are certain digestive enzymes and the presence of stomach acid that are responsible for the absorption of these nutrients. But when we consume alcohol, we're gonna end up lowering our digestive enzymes and lowering the amount of stomach acid that we have. Therefore, instead of absorbing some of the healthy nutrients from our food, we're going to be excreting it from our body. So again, in summary, consuming alcohol is going to kill good bacteria in our gut and will help populate bad bacteria, which leads to dysbiosis, which is the first negative impact. The second one is how alcohol can poke, poke holes into our gut lining, leading to what's called leaky gut, which can cause harmful bacteria and particles going into the bloodstream and wreaking more havoc. Again, thirdly, we talked about how the gut and the brain communicate and it can impact the way that our brain responds to alcohol. It can, it can lead to an increase in cravings for alcohol. And then fourthly, it can decrease the absorption of nutrients that are coming from our food. So even if we're eating a really healthy diet, but we're drinking a lot, that might harm or that might not allow us to optimize the nutrients that we're eating from our food. Fifth topic of seven is alcohol and our sex hormones. So this is an area that I'm not going to be able to dive too deeply in given my limited understanding of how all this works, but I'll tell you what I do know from the education that I've gotten from Dr. Andrew Huberman. So when we consume alcohol, we're going to increase the aromatization of testosterone to estrogen. So testosterone and estrogen are two of our sex hormones, as most of you guys know that. And it's not like one is good or one's bad. All of us require both in different differing amounts. Even all of us males, obviously male, uh, the sex hormone for males is testosterone, but males still need estrogen as well. Obviously the sex hormone for females is estrogen, but females still need testosterone as well. We all just need the appropriate healthy balance of both. And when we consume alcohol, we can actually throw off this balance. So alcohol consumption can lead to an increase in the conversion of testosterone to estrogen, which can lead to low libido and increased fat storage. And I don't say this next part to scare you because I don't know the science and the studies very well on it, but I do think it's just worth mentioning just because Dr. Andrew Huberman considers it worth mentioning, so I'll consider it worth mentioning. There is a link between increased alcohol consumption and increased risk of breast cancer in particular for women, and it's thought to be because of the increased conversion of testosterone to estrogen. So again, to kind of quick little summary there, increased alcohol consumption leads to an increase in the conversion of testosterone to estrogen, which can lead to a less than ideal balance of sex hormones in certain individuals. The sixth topic is how our alcohol tolerance fluctuates. I thought this was interesting as well. When we say tolerance, that kind of refers to the reduced effects of alcohol with repeated exposure. So if we say our tolerance is high, we mean that we have to drink more to feel the effects of alcohol and vice versa. If we say our tolerance is low, then that means it doesn't take very much for us to drink to start experiencing that feeling of being tipsy or drunk. 
and our tolerance level is really impacted by the neurotransmitters released in our brain and the levels of alcohol dehydrogenase that we have in our system. So let's start with that that second one, the enzyme that we talked about early on, alcohol dehydrogenase that converts alcohol into the acetaldehyde. So when we have greater levels of alcohol dehydrogenase, we're able to metabolize and clear alcohol more quickly from our system. Therefore, we're not experiencing the feeling of tipsy or drunk as quickly. And when we drink more alcohol, our body will have greater levels of alcohol dehydrogenase, therefore increasing our so-called tolerance. Another way our tolerance is impacted through the is through the neurotransmitters of dopamine and serotonin. So our tr- neurotransmitters are responsible for motivation and mood. When we drink alcohol, we experience a spike in the production of both of these neurotransmitters of dopamine and serotonin, followed by a long, slow decrease in them. So we'll experience a greater spike in those neurotransmitters if we have a lower tolerance and a smaller spike if we have a higher tolerance. So this leads people with a higher tolerance to continue to drink more to seek out that spike that they actually desire. So this is another one of those systems that is modifiable over time. Again, those of you guys who drink alcohol somewhat regularly, you know this. If you drink just a little bit of alcohol over a period of time, then your tolerance will go down and vice versa. And it can happen over a relatively short period of time. So again, to summarize that part, our tolerance to alcohol is gonna impact how much we consume or don't consume. If we have more of that enzyme that converts alcohol into acetaldehyde, that ADH in our body, then we're going to more quickly metabolize alcohol and have a higher tolerance. And if we experience a smaller spike in dopamine and serotonin, then we're said to have a higher tolerance as well. Last thing I want to talk just real quickly about alcohol's impact on sleep, because alcohol is often used by people to help calm them down in the evening, therefore making it easier to fall asleep. And this indeed does happen. Alcohol consumption increases the production of a hormone called GABA, G-A-B-A, and GABA is known for making us feel calm and relaxed. And so while it can give us a momentary feeling of being relaxed, the GABA, once metabolized, will convert into something called glutamate. Glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter that keeps our nervous system fired up and can lead to frequent bouts of waking up in the middle of the night. And a lot of these bouts of waking up are actually not even known by us. They're not committed to memory by us. So there are sleep studies that have shown a clear link between alcohol consumption and disrupted levels of both our non-REM deep sleep and our REM sleep. It's thought that one of the big reasons for the feeling of being hungover too is because of the disrupted levels of sleep that you experience after drinking along with a whole other whole host of other reasons as well. But again, a quick summary on that is while alcohol, while alcohol can potentially help us fall asleep because of the increase in the relaxation hormone of GABA. Once that once that GABA is converted into glutamate, it keeps our ner- nervous system more excitatory and more awake, therefore potentially leading to more disrupted sleep and frequent bouts of waking up, even if we can't commit that to memory and remember those bouts of waking up. Okay, take a deep breath. I know that was just a whole hell of a lot of talking about negative health effects that take place because of consuming alcohol. And well, yeah, I did talk about a whole host of negative effects and how it has zero health benefits. That doesn't mean that I'm going to completely stop consuming alcohol myself. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about that during next episode. But one thing I do want to make sure I mention is that a lot of people think something like red wine in moderation is going to be healthy for you. But the really, the claim for that 
was because of a compound called resveratrol, which is the component of red wine that some people claim to be healthy. And it is a compound, yes, that's healthy for our bodies, but the amount of resveratrol in red wine is super, super low compared to the amount that we would actually need to experience the benefits from resveratrol. So we'd have to drink tons and tons and tons of red wine to actually get the beneficial effects of resveratrol. And by that time, you'd probably be passed out face down in a ditch somewhere because of how much you had to consume. So given all that I said, like I said, that does not mean that I'm going to completely stop consuming alcohol myself, or at least I don't plan on stopping now. Does it make me consider how much that I drink? Of course it does. I mean, I'm somebody who wants to live a super healthy life, but I also want to live a high quality life. And sometimes that means that I'm okay with doing some healthy things every now and then. And alcohol is one of those unhealthy things that I'm okay with doing every now and then because of the enjoyment that I get from it. And I know most of you guys feel the same way. I know most of you listening are going to be the kind of person who enjoys drinking some alcohol from time to time. But when you drink too much, you wake up the next morning and you sometimes think like, why did I do that? Or was it even worth it? And you do enjoy drinking because you don't want to, and you do enjoy drinking, but you don't want it to cause excess weight gain and you don't want it to cause a rapid decline in your brain health and your metabolic health. So that's why in next week's episode, I'm going to talk about strategies that you can implement to help you do this and help you manage your consumption a little bit more effectively. So given the science that I discussed today, I'm going to be providing you with tools and tips that I've either applied in the past or I will plan to apply in the future and things that I've learned to lessen the negative impacts of alcohol on my health and hopefully will lessen the negative impacts of alcohol on your health as well. I hope to provide you with a realist, more realistic approach that a lot of people out there have and so that you can enjoy your alcohol when you want to, but you have the discipline to abstain from it when you'd like to. And I know for some people, some of you guys might not drink alcohol altogether and great, that might be the healthier way to go. Probably is the healthier way to, way to go. That's just not me at this current time. So I hope the science provides you today with a sense of empowerment to allow you to make better decisions, maybe when it comes to drinking. But like I said, stay tuned for next week's episode so you can manage your alcohol consumption so you can keep your health in check. And if reducing alcohol consumption is something that you know you need to do in order to hit your health and fitness goals, then I'm here to help. I'm obviously not going to be the person that you should go to if you have any issues with alcohol, but I have coached over 600 people through the 10-week transformation, and I'd say at least one-third of them have had goals to reduce alcohol consumption, and so I'd love to help you as well. The next 10-week transformation starts April 22nd, but it's not open for registration until March 7th. So if you're listening to this episode right when it comes out, then the registration has not yet opened yet. If you are listening to it just after March 7th, then get on it. Check the link down below so you can get signed up before spots run out. But in the meantime, if it's before March 7th, you can sign up for our one-week free trial at nickcarrier.com slash free trial. Again, nickcarrier.com slash free trial. I know this was a lot today. I hope it was information that you found somewhat valuable, somewhat convicting. But like I said, really look forward to next week's episode so we can start to prepare some strategies and tools and tips so that we can manage our alcohol consumption a little bit more effectively. But I hope today allows you to get closer and closer to your health and fitness goals and ultimately closer and closer to your best you.